I want to direct your attention to the Gospel of John, first chapter. And I want to read a few verses prior to our passage. If I can dig up my glasses here. I want to read first four, five verses and then read 14 through 18, which is our passage for this morning. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. So note that after John describes the deity, eternal God, the creator, the possessor of all things, he brings him down for his readers into the realm of man. And then he makes this following statement that we saw his glory, glory, is of the only begotten. Now think about that for a moment. Aren't all those things glorious? Isn't everything that Jews of that day knew from the Bible, weren't all those things glorious enough already? Like the, think of the creation of Six days creation, right? Wasn't it glorious? Or the exodus from Egypt with all the plagues? Or the conquest of Canaan, parting of the sea? Wasn't all of that, wasn't all the might and power of God put on display through millennia, through centuries that Israel had witnessed? Weren't all those things glorious already? By themselves. Yet here, he says that it is now that we've truly come to see his glory. That God put his glory on display not from a lofty throne in the highest of heavens, but on earth in the flesh of a man. Let's ponder on that for a moment. How can that be? It seems like Jesus in the flesh of a man had revealed God's glory in the most relatable way for us, in the way which man could finally see and understand. And so... Further in this verse, John explains his statement. What is that essence of God's glory that they were able to now see? Now this word used here, "hiris" or grace, basically means an action of goodwill, favor, a loving kindness. So the glory of God, like nothing else, is revealed by his heart of love. 
by the heart of love, honest love without shade of deceit. John the Apostle here quotes John the Baptist also in this verse when he says, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. Now, as we read together from Exodus 20, God gave the commandments to Moses and the people at the same time from Mount Sinai. And people said, no, we want to stay away. Moses, you go deal with God. And so God called Moses up on the mountain to get the tablets of stone and the law written on it. And as soon as he did so, Israel did exactly the opposite of what God called him to do. And so a few chapters later, we read of Moses now pleading on behalf of man, on behalf of Israel, appealing to the mercy of God against the law that was just given. At the same time, he said, show me your glory. Show me your glory. And God said, I will not show you my glory. You will die. But what, what I will do is I will speak of my glory to you, Moses. I will tell you of what my glory is all about. If you would, please turn with me to Exodus 34. I want to remind us how God, this eternal God of whom John the Baptist said that, This man here in the flesh, full of grace and truth, is the same God which was there from the beginning. Same God who came to show his glory. Exodus 34, 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God. Now note note this, out of everything we can say about God, what does he choose to bring to Moses' attention, to highlight says, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. I want to pause here for just a moment Just to be fair. For some may think that, speak of God as he was all love, love, and no justice, which we all appreciate and desire, don't we? After all, things ought to be fair. Now consider the idea of justice from God's standpoint. Why wouldn't it be okay to kill, to steal, or to lie unrepentantly? Is it just because it's not fair? Would you think that God invented justice just to bring some fairness into the play? Think of a, think of a beautiful garden that you'd plant, full of flowers and trees, or, or a home that you'd build to start a family, which either one of them demands hard, dedicated labor. Upon completion, suddenly, before you know it, 
It is devoured by the locusts or termites. Now, what would you consider to be the appropriate and fair action at this point? To annihilate them or take them to court? I think the former, right? Their nature is set on destroying the very fruit of your labor. And so is with God. Between man, if somebody takes something from you, they can always give it back. However, if one kills another, his life has to be taken. But any offense at God is a direct offense and strike at life itself. For God is life and he sustains all things. And so it's not just because of fairness, it's because it's wrong. All these actions, they destroy the very world God created, the very universe that God cares for. And so, likewise, divine justice comes from the loving heart of God, which upholds and sustains all that is good and fair. And he does away with all that is evil. It comes from the heart which rewards righteousness and keeps evil in check by bringing it to account. It comes from the heart which passionately protects Everything it cherishes, it guards. The things it loves, the things it creates. Like a mother. It comes from the loving heart of God which unceasingly suppresses all that drives a wedge between him and the object of his affection. And so the universe of God the one he created, the world of man, it's, it's constantly under barrage of attack, constantly under the pressure of lies of the devil, the wickedness of man, the sinfulness, the lies, the deceit, the violence that wage relentless war against his universe, the world that he created, his dominion. And so God's fury flows toward unrepentant, hostile creatures. And so we can say that it's almost like I love you and I will kill for you. Have we loved anything? Or anyone like that? I'm pretty sure mothers can relate. If anything comes to harm their little baby. So is God, you see. The justice is not just a counterbalance to God's love. It's not another side of the coin. As if to say that one had nothing to do with the other. It is the outflow of God's loving heart. God, the Lord, who's a jealous God and will stop at nothing to protect the things he cares for, he creates. So we need to understand justice is the part of love. Love which keeps on giving. Love which keeps on providing, sustaining and so John says back in 115, or 16, I'm sorry, for of his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. It's like a never ending subscription of gift baskets. <laughs> I think of the times when you truly come to appreciate the, the idea of giving all the more 
is when your kids start to drive, especially when your car runs out of gas three times a week. Today it's <laughs> kind of crazy. I think like the cash app shouldn't have been invented for another 10, 15 years, you know. And I'm sure kids do also learn to appreciate the idea of their parents' endless giving. You know, we appreciate it, and we want to also be that source of blessing to others. But think of where it comes from. If God created us according to his image, that from the very beginning, from the get-go, would he ever create the world and everything in it if it wasn't for the heart of love? Would a heart of love actually want to create anything? rather than to destroy. If it wasn't for the reason of love, would God ever be bound to keep his promises of hope which he gave to Adam, to Noah, to Abraham? What would hold him to keep those promises if he wouldn't care for his creation and for the man whom he created? If it wasn't for the heart of God's love, would he even give a promise to begin with, would he do that? If you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1, I want to highlight this point about God's intent, his motivation from the get-go. Paul puts it in the right perspective. Ephesians 1.4 says, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Why? He chose men to be with him from before the world was created. So that we would be holy and blameless before him in his presence, in love. You know, we were created to behold God and to receive of the grace which flows freely from him. Would anything other than the love of God bring such a such a thorough satisfaction to us? Would we delight in the planets and galaxies and and all of God's creation apart from his love? Even if we would live forever, would anything be just as satisfying, such as joyous as the love of God? I don't think so. I don't think God thinks that way either. See, he made us so he could lavish the riches of his grace upon us through Jesus Christ. And the Bible is clear that he did not make us to spend eternity in a dungeon mining coal. If you read further in verse 5 and 6, it becomes clear that It is the clear and present objective of God to put his glorious grace on display for the praise of the saints. He writes, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. He made the decision previously in eternity past to bring man into his own abode as his own children. Not just subjects, not just servants, but as sons. According to the kind intention of his will. To the praise of the glory of his grace again. The glory, not of might, not of anything else, not of eternal wisdom, but specifically of his grace, which 
he freely bestowed on us through Christ. Freely. Get it? Free for us, that is. No strings attached. And that is the heart of God. The heart of love which he revealed to men. And he revealed that love to men in two ways. If you turn back to the Gospel of John, chapter 1, in verse 17, John keeps on writing and says, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. So notably, John makes this contrast between between two testimonies about God. One is the law, the commandments which we read. The other one is grace and truth. Now, they were, both of those testimonies were delivered to men through two different agents. One is Moses. The other one is the Son of God. But now, what is the difference between those two? Both of them speak of the character of God. Both of them reveal what God is like, his mind to us. I would say that one is a conceptual revelation. It's static. It speaks of what God is like. While at the same time, It signals to us what we're not like. It speaks to us of the fullness of God. At the same time, everything that is lacking in us. Versus the Son of God. Who shows what God is like. And fills the void for us. And so, we think about the law, about the commandments. We can see the mind behind the law. We can't just look at it as as the list of things to do or not to do. We can perceive the mind of the one who thought of these things, right? The mind of, of God and his righteousness, his perfect righteousness, which is integrity, it's faithfulness to who he is, as it should reflect upon men here on earth. And in Isaiah 42, chapter 42, you can turn there if you want. Chapter 42, verse 21. God, in the context of declaring his holiness, he says this, the following in, in verse 21, chapter 42, 21. He says, The Lord was pleased for his righteousness' sake to make the law great and glorious. For the sake of his own character, for the sake of his own integrity, for the sake of who he is, he made the law great and glorious. Now, if you think about the law, you think about the first four commandments, which deal with man's fellowship with God. And you can truly see where it comes from, from the relationship which exists within the Godhead, within the Trinity, the relationship of exclusivity, relationship of devotion, right? And so it is projected unto men, it is extended to men. Hey, if you're like me, I'm opening the door for you to be with me in that same way, to take rest with me, to abide with me. We observe also 
this perfect spiritual bond that exists in the Trinity and is reflected upon man through these commandments. Now, you can also observe the, the, the honor, right? And the, and the willing submission. If you read commandment number five, right? Honor your parents. We can clearly see the son and the father, the perfect willing submission of one to another. We can see integrity of affections, integrity of love, husband and wife. Also, faithfulness, the righteousness of relationships between men, compassion, honesty. And so these all portray what God is like to men. They speak of love and truth which exists in God. It presents to us the perfect righteousness. It's like unsaleable mountain which leads all the way to heaven, right? Mount Everest, there's a peak of communism. I don't know if they call it really that way, but. <laughs> and at the bottom, at the foothill, they have all the signs there, you know. Hey, and so is the law, the commandments. Here's where you gotta be. You gotta, you gotta go that way. It points to God. As if God said, I want you to be like me. I want you to have a heart like mine. Only in human terms. Now, it's not possible for men because of their sinful nature, right? And that's why God allowed an animal-based atonement in the temple. This was all to change once we would receive of the Spirit of Christ. But until then, the, the response of man was natural, sinful, right? Because of their pride, because of their selfishness, some chose to flat out reject it, ignore it. And some of the real good mountain climbers, they chose to climb the mountain. But who can climb the mountain like this? You know what they also did? They realized they can't climb the mountain. But at least the others wouldn't climb it as high as they could. <laughs> so they started throwing rocks at one another. You know, that's so natural to us. You know, they, they chose to use the law as a whip for their own brothers and sisters. If you're still in Isaiah in chapter 58... God rebukes Israel for that very sin. Verses 4 and 7. You engage yourself into all these religious practices to show me that you obey, that you honor the Lord, that you obey my precepts, right? Behold, you fast for contention and strife and to strike with the wicked fist. You do not fast like you do today to make your voice heard on high. It is a fast like this which I choose, a day for a man to humble himself. Is it for bowing one's head like a reed and for spreading out sackcloth and ashes as a bed? Will you call this a fast, even all acceptable day to the Lord? Is this not the fast which I choose to loosen the bonds of wickedness, to undo the, the bands of the yoke and to let the oppressed go free and break every yoke? They, this is the natural response of men. You either reject it or you abuse it. You, take, you try to take advantage of it. How, can, how could men twist the idea of the law and what it represents and what it stands for so much. 
You know, I tell you how. Because the law shows who God is and what he's really like. And the sinful nature of man just cannot bear it. Cannot bear it. In their pride and stubbornness, they turn to, unto one another and use it as a rod to strike each other. Moses in Deuteronomy 31, and I'll read it to you. Before his departure, <clears throat> spoke the following to the sons of Israel. He said, take this book of the law and place it beside the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God. That it may remain there as a witness against you. For I know your rebellion and your stubbornness. Behold, while I'm still alive with you today, you have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more then after my death? They had no intention to love the Lord, their God, as the law calls them. They had no intention to love their brothers and sisters as the law calls them to do. Because... They didn't see the true, glorious heart of God behind the law. They did not plead with him. Help me. Help me. Save me. Deliver me. To be with you. No, it was not their intent. And Jesus rebuked them in the same way. They would think that Moses would be the one who would continuously plead on their behalf. But Moses is not God. And so Jesus reprimanded the Pharisees in, in, back in John 5, 45. He told them that you think, don't think that I will condemn you. I'm not going to condemn you. Moses in whom you have set your hope, will condemn you. Now the law, as powerless as that may be, in bringing men to repentance, can never accomplish that which only loving kindness of God can do. I know Pastor Mike's, one of his favorite verses in Romans 2, 4, that, don't you know that it's the kindness of God that leads man to repentance, not, not the rod of the law. It's the kindness of God. And Jesus showed the way. And so my final point is the heart of the gospel, and it is the main point. And I want us to reflect on the testimony which the Son of God bore about God, about himself to men. Back in John 1, verse 17, it says, Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. This word, uh, ginamai, is rendered as realized in NSB. Maybe a bit misleading. The idea of God's grace, it was not a non-existent idea, as if God's grace was never shown to people. Um, but at time of Christ, again, when he came, and as you look at the context that John explains for us here that the idea of grace now through the incarnate Son of God came into the realm of man's world, into the realm of human relationships. It's the human relationships that are lacking the true love, the idea of true love. And God is always gracious, whether we notice it or not. We know it now because Jesus has revealed it to us. But the world has no idea. They have no clue as to what the real love is like. When I share the gospel with people, I oftentimes ask them, 
What do you believe is the greatest testimony of love is? As you would expect, the most common answer is motherly love. Love of a mother to her child. Or perhaps love for one's nation or friends. And all those are honorable examples. But all those examples have to do with someone loving the things they favor. Things that are dear to them. But the Bible alone speaks of the true love. The glorious love. As Paul puts it in perspective for us in Romans 5.8, that God demonstrated his own love as opposed to all the rest of the examples of love. He demonstrated his own love to us in that while we were yet sinners, undeserving, wretched sinners, ungrateful, proud, selfish sinners, he gave his life for us. This is the true love of God, who set his heart on men to deliver them from their own demise. And that is the good news of the gospel. That against all of our helplessness, sinfulness, ignorance, there is still God who whose love and goodwill for us is just unbelievable. It's incomprehensible. If you're still in John, here in John 3.16, a well-known verse, we can read again to, just to what lengths God is willing to go to save us. The Son of God Himself who created us and gave us his own life so we may have an eternal hope. Verse 317 says, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. That's the intent for Christ to come, not to hold justice and hold condemnation over us, but to hold mercy and forgiveness and elevate it higher than the law. And that is key. That is key. These are the days of mercy, now and today. The days of judgment are yet to come. But consider this, what can one demand from a fallen, sinful human being? Give me the law? He can't. Can't. And God knows it. Very well knows it. He comes and says, come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Does that sound like demand of the law or an outreach of love? God has come not to accuse us and to hold us in contempt of the law, but to do what it takes to redeem us from destruction, as if to say, I love you, and I will die for you. And this was what anchors our faith, dear friends. That thing alone. That there is still a glimpse of hope. Somewhere out there, there is God who still cares, who loves, who is willing to forgive and to preserve our souls. That is why a man, by simply looking at the cross, can put his full trust in the Son of God, seeing that he was willing to give his life and without knowing him, trust him fully. And so Jesus bore that witness to men. My final point is I want us to look through the 
through some of the instances that John lays out for us in his own gospel. For Christ explains to men the real God, not the God that man perceived, a cruel master who demands obedience and is ready to strike, but the real God with a heart of love and compassion and mercy, heart which is full of blessing, heart which does not lie, heart which gives hope. And so that we can find rest and peace, graciously supplied for all of those who believe in Christ. Now, <clears throat> consider the block party. John presents this account of wedding in Cana of Galilee in chapter 2, verse 9. And we won't go into detail, much detail on that. But what I find interesting here is that the fact that Jesus was open to mingle with regular people in regular ways. And what I mean by regular is that people who are not necessarily part of the body of Christ. Outsiders. They could be people in your neighborhood. People at work. He kept his priority list open. Hey, here's the wedding. Come on, buddy. Join us for the party. Right? He was not locked in by constant demand of discipleship and fellowship, small groups, whatever else we fill up our week with. But he made himself available for people to be there for them. Now, in this case, the time was opportune to simply supply 150 gallons of wine. <laughs> if you ask me, it's a bit excessive, even if you think it was just a grape juice. But, you know, what it gave, what it did, it gave him an opportunity to just show the unreserved grace of God. You need something? Whoever you are, you know, as he told his mother, woman, what do we have to do with any of this, right? Then he turns around and he, he does what, what men need, you know? doesn't hold back. Like, oh, you're not part of our fellowship. You're not part of our church. Can't really help you much unless you come and attend our Sunday services consistently, you know. Just think of it, how many times we miss an opportunity like that. You know, because we don't have hearts set on men, first of all. On men, whoever they are, wherever they come from, they're not part of our close circle. What do I have to do with them, right? What do I have to do with unbelievers? I can't fellowship with unbelievers. These are all well-known reasons. But the Lord shows us, let's be there simply for, for their sake, for people's sake, and see what kind of opportunities the Lord will open up for us. Just be there for them. Yes, they drink beer, they talk football, whatever it is. Be there for people. Or consider, consider the other kind of people. In John 4, 7, Jesus met a woman at the well. And a couple of things kind of show us the intent the, the emphasis that John is trying to make is who the gospel is for and how it is delivered. Now, for us today, it may not seem su such a big deal, a foreigner, a woman 
and so forth. But back then in the Jewish cultural historical context, it was. And so not, not only that she was a Samaritan, right, but she was also a woman. What do you do with that? I mean, you can ignore her, or you can frown upon her. Or you can get mean with her and tell her to leave. Or you can simply say, excuse me, can I have some water? Can I have some water? Now, she told her people when she went off that Jesus told her all about herself. Now, the only things Jesus told her was true. You're not lying. Not lying. You don't have a husband. And all the men you've been with, not your husbands either. As if to say, that's it. That's how it is. That is your life. That's who you are. But see, it does not end there. At least not for Christ. At least in the eyes of Christ, he saw her more than what she is now. In, the, in his eyes, she could become a true worshiper of God. And he opened it up to her. He did not stumble over what she was, but pointed her to what she could become. For God is able to do miracles with the hearts of men. In my, in my life, there's plenty of examples, even from, the, from our gym here on the corner, the CrossFit gym. And you got all sorts of human beings coming in there. The most awkward case is when you struggle to shift your perspective properly Especially when some gay dude or lesbian gal, you know, they, they outperform you, hands down. And you, you, you want to make connection in some way, you know, but your mind starts to play tricks with you, as always. It's like, gosh, do they know that God hates homosexuality? How can I tell them that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Oh, man. And so that's the point where you hit the wall. But the Lord would simply come and say, hey, good job. You're awesome. I bet you could do so much more than this. Oh, yeah? How? How? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you all about it. Can I share with you the love of God? Because he cares for you. See, it's all about building a bridge with the person. Caring about the person. What he could be in God's hands. Not what he is because of him, because of his fallen nature right now. We look beyond that. We believe that God is capable to draw men to himself, to lead them to repentance through the loving kindness and truth. That's what we believe. That's what holds our hearts. The love of God, the grace and truth of Christ. Finally, just a couple more minutes. Consider Mercy above the law. If you look in much disputed passage of John 8, we have an incident of an adulterous woman. John 8, 2. And I mean, the picture is clear. We see a bunch of people trying to use the law, as they normally do, to their own advantage. Now, but what I find particularly sinister is how low of a regard they have 
for another person's life, that they're willing to use it as a bait to lure Jesus into corner. It's nothing to them. Never mind them. Christ made a solid point, which resonates with Romans 3.10. There's none righteous, not even one. Their throat is an open grave with their tongues. They keep on deceiving. Who is there to pass judgment? Who is there among us to, to pass judgment? And the striking point that is the one who is, in this case, without sin. Who perfectly knows the demand of the law. Chooses to suppress the law and elevate mercy above the law. That is... That is amazing. And that is the heart of the gospel. That very gospel, which Jesus put on full display about God for us. He is the gospel in whom we believe. There's hope for us. And that hope is rooted in God's love alone. We believe in this God Witness to us by Christ? Or do we believe in some other God? An evil master. And if so, if that is the God we believe, if that is the gospel of that very God we believe, so let us live by that faith. Faith in the grace and truth of God. And let us share it with people around us and among ourselves. Thank you. Let me pray as I close. Father, it is truly amazing that you have brought us near. We may not even remember how and when it happened exactly. You made it happen against our better judgment, against our human wisdom, against our evil, stubborn hearts. You brought us to yourself. You made us your children, Lord. And we know that you will not let us go. You will not let us go because you love us so much. It's not that we deserve your love, but this is your heart. And that's what sets our hearts at peace. And this is where we rest. That you are loving, caring, merciful, forgiving Father to us, Lord. And we want to thank you. We want to share the same with people around us. Lord, help us. Help us. Be loving. Drive all the fear away. Give us hearts that truly care for others as you have cared for us, Lord. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.